We're doing a series of teaching about how to overcome sin. Uh, all that teaching is on the internet, on YouTube, and on our website. I'd encourage you to go back if you haven't been here for all of it, because if you just do one of these principles, um, it can help you. It can bring breakthrough, but it, it's also possible that it can get you out of balance and that you'll uh, end up not walking in the full breakthrough. It's, there's, there's lots of facets of life. And there are principles that deal with those different facets. Um, when we talk about overcoming sin, you'll remember we're not just talking about how to, how to quit some bad habit. We are talking about that. But we're really talking about how to walk in victory in every area of our lives. If we struggle with insecurity or anger or shame or fear, these principles can uh, help us overcome that. I feel like I'm ringing a little bit, guys. Um, so the principles are that we went through are, number one, we are dead to sin. That's the first thing. So that means that your sin nature is dead. Sin is not who you are. So let's all say this together. I am a saint, I am a saint. Not, a not a sinner. Failure, Failure. is not part not of my nature. Of my nature. Fear, Fear is not part of my nature. Insecurity is not part of my nature. How many of you can say amen to that? Amen. Okay, now you might say, I don't feel that way. Well, it doesn't matter <laughs> how you feel. What you want to do is confess the truth and faith, and your feelings will follow your faith. They will. Now, number two, we said that we are powerful in Christ. That means we can make powerful decisions. So, is the devil making you sin? No. <laughs> no. Now, the devil can tempt you, and he can tell you lies, but if you believe the lie, that, that's, that's on us, right? So we need to take responsibility for our lives. One of the hardest things to do in life is learn to assimilate responsibility without condemnation. What people tend to do is, is either just shirk responsibility entirely or feel horrible about themselves. And you've you got to walk the narrow middle path, which is I'm going to take responsibility for the stuff I'm in control of. I'm not in control of everything, but I am in control of a lot. But if I, if I blow it, I'm not going to yield to shame and condemnation. I'm going to get myself up off the mat, and I'm going to keep going. Then we said last week, and I'd encourage you, a lot of people weren't here, uh, I, I preached what I thought was a really powerful message. I think I may have caused marital disputes, but, but, but <laughs> so if you need counseling, you can come talk to us. But anyway, uh, uh, but we, we want to learn to live in healthy community where we confess our faults one to another and pray for one another. And uh, so that's a powerful principle. If you have some kind of problem, you don't want to rehearse the problem forever, and you don't want to uh, make your life about your problem, but you do want to find somebody that you can be vulnerable with and be honest about what you're going through, and that can lead you to breakthrough. The last principle, that, or the next one that we're going to talk about today is that we want to proactively exchange old ways of thinking and behavior for new ones. Just trying to stop doing something negative is really hard. Don't think about an apple. Make sure you're quick. Don't think about an apple right now. Don't think about it. 
Nobody think about an apple. How many of you are thinking about apples? Okay. Why is it that if you, if you listen to, to preaching or teaching or whatever, and all, what they do is say, don't sin, don't sin, quit sinning. Quit sinning right now. Are you sinning? Who else is sinning? <laughs> and when you do that, what are you, what are you talking about? You're, you're th- talking about sin. You're thinking about sin, and it actually empowers the sin. It makes it harder to get out of the sin. If you've ever listened to somebody and they're like, don't commit adultery, don't commit adultery, make sure you're not lusting, nobody think about sex outside of marriage. Don't think about it. Don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about your neighbor naked. Yeah, thanks. All the married couples, you can thank me, you know. It's not good, right? Now everybody's really uncomfortable. That's, I hadn't planned to say that. That's, that wasn't good, but anyway. Jesus, help me. The point is, 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the strength of sin is the law. The law says, thou shalt not. And focusing all the time on what I'm not allowed to do puts my attention on that and makes it harder to stop. Whatever I give attention to, I empower. When we're exerting the energy of our flesh to stop stressing out, or stop lusting, or stop getting angry, or stop some substance abuse. You know, if you sit in a room and you think, don't smoke a cigarette, don't smoke a cigarette, don't smoke a cigarette, that's not going to help you. You're going to go outside and smoke a cigarette, okay? When we, when we spend a lot of time thinking about our problem, we give strength to it. Now, Hebrews 10, everybody else turned there except me. Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, let's read this. It says, The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For would they then not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more consciousness of sins. This says that in the Old Testament, they had to offer a whole bunch of ritual sacrifices again and again and again. And that in those sacrifices, actually it says in verse 3, in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins every year. Every year they'd have the Day of Atonement, and you'd afflict yourself, and you'd think about what a rotten person you were, and, uh, and remember, and you'd mourn before God, and you'd fast, and you would say, I'm still a sinner. And these sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, the Scripture says, can never actually take away sin. If they would have, it says at some point you could quit offering them. It's like my house payment. I pay that thing every month. I'm, I'm paying down the principal a little bit, not as much as I'd like to, but I'm paying it down and eventually the thing's going to be paid off, right? So those payments actually avail something. The trouble was that these blood of bulls and goats, all these sacrifices, they weren't actually paying down the sin debt. 
they were not availing anything. In fact, the interest rate was so high, if you want to use that analogy, that even though they were doing these sacrifices, their debt to God was getting worse. And he, he says, that's, so every year they're being reminded of their problem, that I've got a bigger and bigger problem. Well, the, the thing that's distressing to me is that, that for years in my Christian life, what I felt like Christianity was about was being reminded of my problems again and again and again and how I was still a failure. But the rest of this chapter goes on to say that, that so the, the premise is, if there's something that can pay off your sin debt, then you wouldn't have to think about it anymore. If I pay off my house payment, the bill's not going to come every month. And man, that'll be exciting. I'd rejoice. How many of you'd rejoice if somebody just came and paid off your house payment? That would be good news. It'd almost be too, too good to be true news. Well, the word gospel means almost too good to be true news. If you read the rest of the chapter, the point is that Jesus is the sacrifice that once and for all pays off all our sin debt. The implication, therefore, being you don't have to think about it anymore. That makes me want to run around personally. I mean, I know I've taught this a bunch, but but the point is... That all of your sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for and forgiven, and it's, it's taken care of. Forgiveness is a cord that stretches from eternity past to eternity in the future. And if you, by faith, reach out and grab a hold of the cord named Jesus, then all your sin is taken care of, which means you don't need to fixate on your problems. Okay, I just spent a whole sermon last week telling you to go confess your faults to other people. <laughs> so there's a balance to everything, right? Are, are there times in life when we need to take a moment and figure out why I'm doing some negative behavior? Yeah, absolutely. If I'm doing a bad behavior and I'm not getting out of it, then I ought to go get counseling. I ought to figure out what the problem is and try to work on it. But if I fixate on it, and this, I love inner healing ministry, I love counseling, but at some point, you, you need to just believe that Jesus fixed you and let it go. Now, where are you in that process? Well, it's different for every person. So one ditch is, I, I spend too much time fixating on my sin. The other ditch is, I never deal with my issues. So... Some legalists spend a lot of time over here. Some grace people spend too much time over here. We're a super honest church, okay? The the balance is, is walking down the middle, which is I am forgiven. God is not mad at me. I am whole in Christ. I may still have some problems. If I have a problem, I ought to go get help. But my problem isn't my identity. My problem isn't something that I fixate on. It's something that I'm walking out of in Jesus. You're supposed to live righteousness conscious. The primary way you need to be thinking is things like, thank God I'm clean, I'm holy, I love God, I love my family, I love my life, life is good, I'm blessed. These are the kinds of things that I need to be thinking. If I'm, and here's, here's the thing that, that is, was difficult for me to understand at first, but the 
the way I grew up in church, the only way I knew to have an, an authentic encounter with God was to feel bad. Because what I'd experienced with God was conversion. And conversion comes with repentance. And it comes with this genuine expression, I am a sinner. I have, I've screwed up. I need to come down and repent. But nobody taught me that there was a way to experience anything in God beyond that. And I ended up just repeating that experience over and over and over. And the only way I knew how to feel before God was shame and, and, and uh, guilt. And so I put this thing on Facebook and, and uh, you know, I said, I was talking about my kids. I, you know, when I go to pick up my one-year-old daughter and she sees me, I'm, I'm her dad, what she does, she doesn't run away because she's been staying with, with my sister. What she does is she smiles super big because dad showed up because dad's there. And so many people... When they come into the Father's presence, the first thing they think about is all their sin and all their failure and all this stuff, and they think God's, you know, Dad's going to be mad at them and stuff. And that's the furthest thing from my mind. I don't go to my sister and say, well, what did, what did Iris screw up today? I just go pick her up and I give her a big kiss, and I hold her. Now, if she's done something wrong, then we'll deal with it. But I mean, the primary thing is I want her to feel loved and accepted in my presence. The thing you've got to understand that is that the Holy Spirit and your conscience are not the same thing. I know that may sound like blasphemy to some of you, but it's, <laughs> it's not true. The Holy Spirit is not your conscience. If you just think about it for a minute, if the Holy Spirit was your conscience then every Christian should have the same standard by which your conscience either excuses you or condemns you. Because the Holy Spirit is not schizophrenic. He doesn't have different standards of what is holy. And yet some of you could go watch an R-rated movie and not feel condemned, and some of you could not. When my grandma was growing up, it used to be a sin to play cards. And the preacher would come by your house because, you know, how many of you would like it if I just came over to check whether or not you're sinning, you know? <laughs> just, just show up randomly. This is, it was a small town. This is what people did. And so when the preacher would come by, they'd look out the window and they'd, oh no, the preacher's coming. And they'd put the card table away and they'd hide it. Oh, man. So the preacher didn't know that they were sinning. Well, most of us now have believed that, that playing cards is not a sin. Was the Holy Spirit condemning them for playing crazy eights? The Holy Spirit don't care about that. All right? What was condemning them was their conscience. Your conscience is shaped by whatever law you apply to it. If the religious community says to you it's a sin to play cards and you believe that, then your conscience will condemn you for playing cards. That's pretty simple, isn't it? The Scripture says this in 1 John 3, verse 20. It says, if our heart... Well, let's just go over there. 1 John 3, verse 20. It says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So there's a clear separation there between God and your heart. 
or your conscience. And then it says in verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence towards God. But if you put that together with Romans 8.1, which says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, it's pretty clear God's not condemning you. So if you feel condemned, what's condemning you? Your conscience. So sometimes that's good, like if you do something wrong, right? Okay, so some grace teaching is like, well, you should never feel guilt. Well, that's, that's called psychopathy. It's a, like, like not having a conscience. If you, if you do something bad, you should feel bad about it. Buddy, nod at me. Okay, okay. If, if, you're, if you're mean to your wife... You need to feel bad, otherwise you have some sort of problem. I'll pray for you, okay? But you don't live there. It doesn't become your identity. Paul said there's sorrow that leads to repentance. That's called godly sorrow or guilt, which is temporary, and it says you're a good person, but you screwed something up. Clean up your mess. That's what I say to my kids. Shame says... You're a terrible person and you've screwed up and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing, you, you can't be saved. That's, that's the ungodly sorrow. And that's our overactive conscience beating us up. Often the whole, now some people said, well, what about conviction? Doesn't the Holy Spirit convict us? Well, a lot of people confuse conviction with the horrible feeling of shame that you have when you blow it. Again, that is condemnation. That is your, your conscience. The Holy Spirit, there's actually... This is surprising to some people, but there's not a verse that says that the Holy there's not a verse that expressly says the Holy Spirit is convicting believers. I believe that he does, and I'll explain to you why. But the verse most people are thinking about is John 16, verse 8. John 16, verse 8 says, When the Holy Spirit is come, he will reprove or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Who will he convict of sin? In the Bible are the world Christians. And then in verse 9, it says, of sin because they believe not on me. Okay, so what's the Holy Spirit telling the world? You, you need to believe on Jesus. You're a sinner. You need to put faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not saying to people, you're a terrible person because of sin A, B, C, and D. The church gets that message, it helps you in your evangelism, because if our evangelistic method looks like shaming people into conversion, we're, we're probably not going to have a lot of effectiveness. We can have some effectiveness, but it's, it's better to partner with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is, people know, most people know that they've got problems. What you need to point them to is the answer, which is Jesus. Now, some people don't know they have problems, and that's why 1 Timothy says, that the law is good for people that are ungodly and don't know it. And so you can, you can say, well, you know, the Scripture says you're, you're not supposed to murder, and Jesus said that's like being angry at somebody. And so, so if you think you're great, but you've never been angry or whatever. So I don't want to get off on that. But turn over real quickly to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Well, what about Christians? Doesn't the Holy Spirit talk to Christians? Sure He does. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. How many of you believe that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible through people? 
All right. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God. The literal Greek says God breathed. He breathed it out on people and through people. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the, the Holy Spirit through the Scripture will reprove and correct and instruct you. That's what conviction of the Holy Spirit looks like. It's the Holy Spirit explaining to you what's wrong and how to fix it. Not just this vague feeling of, I'm a horrible person. Because that vague feeling doesn't help you get out of the problem. Usually, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to convict Christians very often because your own conscience knows when you've screwed up. How many of you can attest to that? You, you know when you've blown it. So the, Holy, so the Holy Spirit just comes and explains how to fix it. Now, there have been times in my life when I thought I was doing the right thing, and the Holy Spirit had to come and say, hey, you're kind of blowing it big time right, right over there. I'm not mad at you. You're a good boy, but you think you're right, and you're not. <laughs> and that's not fun. <laughs> but it helps me, and I'm ready to receive that correction. Okay? So, what does all this mean? Feeling horrible is not a good strategy to overcome our problems. Listening to condemning preaching and stuff, I'm not mad at condemning preaching, I'm just telling you, if you're, if you're mad at sinners and you're trying to punish them out of sin, you're going to push them further into bondage. There's a, an amazing parable about this, because the reality is what you want is people to choose righteousness of their own free will. And if they're fearing punishment and control, they can't make a legitimate choice for righteousness. There's a, there's a parable uh, that in a children's book about this debate between the wind and the sun. Anybody read this? Okay, so this, the wind and the sun have this debate, and they're trying to figure out which one's more powerful. And the wind says, I'm more powerful. And the sun says, no, I'm more powerful. And they find a person with a coat on, and they say, I'm going to prove which one's more powerful. And the wind says, I can get that coat off that person, no problem. And the sun says, no, you can't. I'll do it better than you. And the, the wind says, watch me. And he starts to blow this cold, bitter wind and blow and blow, the wind of, of condemnation and shame and just blowing and blowing and blowing. And the person starts to wrap the coat around themselves tighter and hold on to it because the wind's trying to blow it off and, and they're cold and they're, they're holding on to the thing more tightly. And the wind blows and blows and blows and can't get the coat off and finally gives up and he says to the sun, well, you can't do it either. But then the sun comes out and he starts to shine and the guy starts to warm up. And then he starts to think, you know what? This coat, this old coat isn't helping me anymore. I'm starting to get hot. And then of his own volition, the guy takes off the jacket and the guy walks out of it. You know, there's a man in the Bible called Bartimaeus and he was blind. He was born blind. And when you're born blind in that community, you have, you, they think that you're cursed. Now, you're not cursed, but that's how, that's how they viewed it back then. And uh, however your, whatever your profession was, you dressed in a way that 
demonstrated to people what your profession was. If you're a priest, you dressed like a priest. If you were a, a carpenter, you dressed like a carpenter. If you're a nobleman, you dressed like a nobleman. If you're a beggar, you dress in the robes of a beggar. Bartimaeus has been begging his whole life. He has a beggar's robe on, and he's sitting there on the street, and the Son of God starts to come by. And he yells out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people near him say, shut up, he doesn't care about you, but he ignores them, and he says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he says, be quiet, Jesus don't care about you. And he says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him, and he stops and the Son of God turns and begins to shine on this blind man, Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus stands up and the people say, have, have good cheer because he's looking at you. And the Son, the Son of God shines on Bartimaeus' heart. Before Jesus does anything, he takes off his robe. And he says, I'm about to not need this anymore. I'm about to not need this, this robe that identified me as, as some kind of problem. I'm about to take off this sin. I'm about to take off this brokenness. And then Jesus healed him, and he walked out of it. Well, that's awesome. What do you do? You don't just, you don't just get rid of the bad behavior. And you don't try to scare people into get rid of the bad behavior. You let the Son of God shine on them until they're ready to take it off. But the Scripture says you don't just take off the old man. You don't just take off the old behaviors. You have to put on the new man, which is where we get this principle called the but-rather principle. Earlier, about, a, about eight months ago, we had this principle called the holy but principle. So this is the holy but-rather principle principle. Ephesians 4, let's go there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians 4, 28 says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather, everybody say but rather, let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may give to him that is in need. Previously, this guy, anybody, there are people that were thieves. And why were they thieves? Probably to feed their families. They didn't have a, you know, a good economy like we do. Thank God. Thank God for America. But anyway, this guy, he was stealing, and he says, well, quit stealing. Take off that old robe of being a thief. Take off that old identity. But don't just take it off. Put on something else. And he says, he says, change what you do. So he was stealing, now he's going to work. But he says also, change why you do it. You used to steal to take care of yourself and your family. Now you're working so that you can give. If you want to change bad habits, you want to change bad behavior, you want to change what you're doing, but you also want to change why you're doing it. You want to change the motivation. I gave you a bunch of examples here. You want to intentionally change what you do and why you do it. If, if for example, you're tempted to get angry, actually look over at Ephesians 5. Let's, let's read this real quick. Ephesians 5, verse 3 and 4 says, But fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becomes the saints. So he says, quit doing all this stuff. 
Neither filthiness, nor foolishness, nor jesting, which, are not con- which is not convenient. He's not, saying, he's not saying you can't make any jokes. He's saying you know, this, this attitude where we're making fun of people all the time is unhealthy. But rather giving of thanks. Everybody say, but rather. But rather giving of thanks. So the, the principle is this. I, I want to let go of an old way of thinking and an old pattern of behavior, and I want to act radically in the opposite spirit. When I'm angry, what am I, what am I angry about? Well, I'm probably I'm, I'm unhappy. I'm unthankful. I'm thinking about all the stuff that's wrong in my life, right? Instead of all the stuff that's right. If I have an anger problem, what I want to learn to do is, is not just don't be angry, don't be angry, don't because then I'm, Okay, it's, it's, it's don't be angry, instead be thankful. Replace the anger with thankfulness. Go in, go in some place and if you start to get angry, go, go recite a list of things that you're thankful for. And then do something to intentionally serve the person that you're mad at. Act radically in the opposite spirit. If you're tempted to have lust, well, instead of that, choose to pray for people that are caught in sex trafficking. And then give money and volunteer to help see it end. If you're tempted with jealousy, this is a a huge one. If you've got somebody in your life that you're jealous of, what's that about? It's about you fearing that that you're not going to be valued for who you are and the sunlight's not going to shine on you. If you feel that way, you're believing a lie about yourself which says that you're an insecure person who who needs public acclaim. What you want to do is act radically in the opposite direction. So instead of being jealous, go and honor the person that you're jealous of. Draw the attention to them. Point out why they're so great. Give them some money. Act, Act in the opposite spirit. And when you act in the opposite spirit, you'll find out that's who you really are. If you're struggling with anxiety or fear, you, what you want to do is dr- deliberately confront the thing you're afraid of and move towards it. Fear says move away from the thing. What David did, now look, the whole nation of Israel was afraid of Goliath. Is that true? I'm sure David was afraid of Goliath. This whole stuff about live fearless. Nobody lives fearless. We all have fear. Courage is overcoming the fear and doing the thing anyway. What David did that the other people didn't do is he ran towards his giant. The thing he was afraid of, he intentionally attacked. Your destiny typically is hiding behind stuff you're afraid of. If we medicate our stress with food, TV, social media, or something else that's putting us in bondage, now again, there's nothing wrong with eating food or watching TV or whatever, but if if that thing is controlling me and I'm tempted to run to it every time I've got a problem, I need to retrain myself to run to Jesus. Go read a psalm. Go, Go focus on Jesus. Does that all make sense? So it's really, really practical. The, the idea is simply to choose some kind of activity or thought pattern that is opposite in nature to what you struggle with. You then do it repeatedly to replace the old pattern. As you do this, you develop new neural pathways that make it become easier over time. The, this, 
The trouble with our brain is that it's got grooves in it. Anybody ever looked at a brain? And, and so when Molly was in college, they gave us this box of bones. It was like, anyway, I don't know why I'm thinking about that. But, but so brains, they get, they, they're, they're like highways. How many, of you, how many of you drove the quickest route here? Okay, none of you actually did. Because the quickest route here is as the crow flies. But you can't drive that way, right? You drove on the road. You drove on what was paved. The way you think is the exact same way. You think on what you've paved. But you can pave a new road. But it does take some practice. And it, but it can be just as easy for us to run to prayer as it is to run to worry. That's a positive confession for me, all right? Lastly, I want to stress, though, so, so when you, again, when, whenever you tell somebody, okay, go do something, what they think is, I'm going to go do it in the effort of my flesh. And so a lot of you are like, I'm going to create a chart, and it's like, oh, I've got I to think this way eight times a day or something. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you in the effort of your flesh trying to rewire your brain. What I'm talking about is, is you, through intentionality, waking up to the reality of who you already are in Christ. And by grace, drawing on the strength of God to do what was previously impossible for you to do. I've given you, I think, this example before in my life, but I, I struggled with anger for years towards my dad, and I was mad at my dad, and this was like a stronghold in my life. It was a, way, it was a wrong way of thinking. It was a groove in my brain. Well, I could, through the effort of f- flesh, try to be like, I'm not angry, I'm not angry. Okay, that's not it. What, I, what you do is, you, is you, you sit with God, and you say, God, help me see who I really am. And and I didn't even really know any of these principles, but God just spoke to me as I was in prayer one day, and he said, you are not an angry person. You have believed a lie about yourself. And when I saw that, it's like it immediately drained. It's like God pulled the plug, and all that anger drained out. And it just it went away. Hallelujah. It was by the grace of God. Now, but I still had some old patterns of thought, and so I had to train myself to think in a more positive fashion about that relationship. Everybody all right? The, the scripture, Paul said, by the grace of God, I labored more than you all. It's not that there's not hard work in the kingdom. It's that God co-labors with you and that he supernaturally aids your labor. When you're within your grace and you're doing stuff, it energizes you. You feel like you can keep going, and, and stuff multiplies, and it happens more effectively than if you were doing something outside your grace. If you're just spinning your wheels all the time and you feel like you're exerting a ton of effort and you're not making progress, you're probably in a, doing something outside of your grace or doing it with a legalistic mentality. Um, I may try to clarify that better for you next week because I feel like I didn't explain it that good. So anyway, let's all stand up. I'm going to pray for everybody, and then I'm going to go get changed. So uh, as you exit, 
lost my, okay, as you exit the uh, room here, if you go all the way to the end of the hallway at the right, there's a pool. So that's where we're going to baptize people. If you're being water baptized and you're going to change, go ahead and head back to the changing, there's bathrooms right back there. Go ahead and go back right now and get changed and meet me in there. We'd love for all of you to come witness it. If you need to go home, we understand. But it's great to have people be there to see what's, what's happening. Uh, water baptism is a funeral service for your old man. Funerals don't kill anybody, but they help us process the fact that the person is gone. Well, water baptism helps people process the fact that their old man is dead. And then you come back up and you, you're a new person, so it's also a birthday. Uh, so it's going to be really special. My prayer team could come down here. I'm going to pray for everybody. And then if you need personal prayer, you can come uh, receive prayer from, from a prayer minister. Uh, and then I'm going to go run out here and change. And then I'm going to go in there and, and baptize people. So that's where, that's where I'll be. So anyway, we love you. Thank you for being here. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you love us, that you're a good God, that you're helping us uh, get out of whatever ruts that we're in. And Lord, let your grace just rise up within us to do supernaturally more than we'd be able to do on our own. And I thank you for bondages being broken off of people and wholeness and health happening in Jesus' holy name. Amen.